bits and pretzels inspire you. You will figure it out. This is clearly the place to be. Servus, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Bits and Pretzels podcast. I'm Britta Wedling, Bits and Pretzels Editor-in-Chief, and I welcome you to the show. This week, we have somebody on who I wanted to talk to for a long time. Eric Ries, the American entrepreneur, blogger, and author of New York Times bestseller, The Lean Startup, a must-have Bible for all entrepreneurs. It initiated the Lean Startup movement, a scientific approach to creating and managing startups and get a desired product to customers' hands faster. That numerous entrepreneurs credit for their success. With decades of experience as an entrepreneur and startup advisor, Eric Ries has come to realize that operating with a long-term philosophy is necessary to change the world. However, the current landscape of public capital markets doesn't reward this type of thinking, he's convinced. That's why Eric designed and launched the Long-Term Stock Exchange with the support of powerful Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, including Netscape founder and VC Mark Andreessen, to offer companies in every industry a public market option designed to shift the narrative and metrics of success. From a quarterly drumbeat to a long-term perspective to sustained growth. And in our conversation, Eric points out what mindset is helpful to build long-term success as an entrepreneur and how to deal with uncertainties not limited to the current coronavirus crisis. The most important personality trait to cultivate as a founder is equanimity. There's a very small number of things that you do control every day. And do you have the courage, the equanimity, and the determination necessary to focus in on just those few things? and get those things done each day. I think that is the hardest thing as an entrepreneur. Eric Ries, thank you so much for coming on the Bits and Pretzels podcast today. Thank you for having me. Eric, you're a serial entrepreneur, author of several books, uh, among them uh, the New York Times bestseller and startup Bible, The Lean Startup that initiated the Lean Startup movement. Numerous entrepreneurs credit your build, measure, learn method for their success. And among other things, you work as an advisor for startups, companies, and VC firms. And you're also the founder and CEO of the Long-Term Stock Exchange, which focuses on supporting companies and investors who share a long-term vision. And when the crisis hit uh, earlier this year, you were actually very fast responding uh, with different projects. And one of them was something that I found very interesting, uh, the idea to launch a platform called Help Kitchen, which tackles the problem of food insecurity uh, during uh, the current crisis. When you think about your path and your evolution as an entrepreneur, because, you know, in this kind of situation, many entrepreneurs think about creating impact, impactful business. Many people talk about social entrepreneurship. How has your evolution as an entrepreneur so far built up to this decision? Sure. Well, and thank you for, uh, for having me on and, and uh, for a very thoughtful introduction. Um, for me, entrepreneurship was never something that I like grew up dreaming that I would do someday. I was a technologist first, long before I had any interest in business. And I got into, uh, into entrepreneurship through technology. I thought the best way to create technologies that would really have impact and help people would be, uh, you know, if I was able to call the shots myself uh, versus having to be part of some vast corporate bureaucracy. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that was a pretty naive view because uh, as I think it was Nate Silver who said, the worst part about working for yourself is you hate your boss. <laughs> 
So, you know, we trade, I I traded all of the structure and discipline and strategy of a corporate bureaucracy for the uh, chaos and total incompetence of being a first time entrepreneur. This is Mm -hmm. gosh, more than 20 years ago now, but uh, slowly over time, I came to really appreciate the power of entrepreneurship as a force for good in the world. Um, It is a really rewarding, stressful, difficult, but um, powerful way to make change. Mm-hmm. And so uh, initially I was interested in, you know, making technology work for people and making money doing it. And I was building very conventional venture backed for-profit companies, uh, here in Silicon Valley after I moved here, um, in 2001. And I had that as a career for a while, but I found the way that entrepreneurship was practiced uh, at that time, very unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously people can read a whole book about it, um, about my thoughts on the matter, but I felt like the practice of entrepreneurship, the management of startups ought to be more humane, more customer centric, more scientific, and have a philosophy of long-term thinking embedded within it. And everything I was observing in the ecosystem at that time was kind of the opposite of those principles. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately led to writing the book uh, and developing the theory of the lean startup and, and all that. And and since that time, because of the success of lean startup and you know my own uh, deepening understanding, I hope... I've been able to tackle kind of more interesting, more complicated and more avant-garde projects, you know, including, as you mentioned, the long-term stock exchange, where we're trying to tackle this massive regulatory um, financial incentive and kind of philosophical disease at the heart of modern capitalism. Hmm. And then when the pandemic hit, uh, projects like Help Kitchen. So it's been uh, been incredibly rewarding to get to use those entrepreneurial tools in greater and, and more varied domains over time. I don't know how you look at it, but at least here in Europe and in our community at Bits and Pretzels, I hear more people talking about impact social entrepreneurs being really aware of the responsibility that you actually have as somebody who is a force for good, who can really you know, out of this chaos that you just, you know, talked about uh, uh-huh. being entrepreneurship, create, you know, something good. Do you, f- is this like a similar situation that you experience where you are in San Francisco? Yes, that's very much been my experience. And we should be super clear, entrepreneurship is is almost a kind of technology itself. And therefore it is not guaranteed to be used for good. Uh, it is a, makes something, you know, like anything that makes humans more powerful and more effective, it can be used for whatever ends their values dictate. So mm-hmm. certainly my experience of the pandemic has been one of really clarifying what matters in life and, um, you know, really focusing those tools on the values that I hold most dear. And yet I think that has not been a universal experience. So, you know, uh, for example, in the early days of the pandemic, I was part of a network of many tech people, many Silicon Valley people who kind of leapt into action and were funding initiatives, building new nonprofits, um, you know, lobbying for change, uh, advocating for masks, for lockdowns, uh, bringing mm-hmm. the data of the pandemic to the public's awareness, working on PPE, on food and hunger, on education and school closures. I mean, I could I feel like I could uh, just announce for an hour, uh, just we do a whole hour on just all the yeah. incredible things yeah. that, that people mm-hmm. were doing. And yet, I've seen the energy that was going into that kind of dwindle over time. You know, I think that there was this initial surge of excitement that this would be an opportunity to make a change and make, you know, make things uh, better. And, but everyone mm-hmm. who still had that mindset that this would only last for a few weeks or a few months. Nobody imagined that we would be mm-hmm. where we are now globally with the pandemic and certainly in the yeah. U.S., um, you know, in, in such a catastrophic situation that we find ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. It's similar here. Um, 
people would never have guessed that we would go into a second lockdown uh, and numbers skyrocketing and the infection numbers skyrocketing. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely devastating. So, so yeah, I think, I think that the pandemic has scrambled people's priorities in so many ways, but not everyone has taken inspiration from it. I think some have turned to a more cynical view. Some have felt depleted and have kind of given up and others have been kind of fighting the good fight this whole time. Um, it's been really interesting to see how different people respond to the same thing. As somebody who knows the startup scene by heart, who has been an entrepreneur, who has written this book that's kind of the Bible on many entrepreneurs' bookshelf, um, what do you think is needed in this situation for founders? Because when I prepared this interview, I was reading through your notes and uh, thought a lot about what you talked about in your book, Build, Measure, Learn, uh, these principles. And, you know, really the idea that you can build and establish a successful idea without a large amount of financial resources and processes really is something that you want to have in such a crisis. Did this thought ever appear to you that the lean setup method becomes more something that people would look at um, in, in this crisis ever? You know, certainly I didn't have it as any kind of plan who could have foreseen the depth of this crisis. But, you know, the lean startup was originally born out of the last, what we used to call the Great Recession. I don't know mm -hmm. what we're going to call it. Yeah. You know, yeah, I remember in 2009 talking to people about lean startup and um, people misunderstood what it was about, of course, because they just, you know, it was, it was new on the scene and people said, mm -hmm. oh, is that going to help mm -hmm. me get out of my office lease and help me sell off this too expensive furniture that I bought, you know, during the boom times? And I remember back then trying to say to people, look, um, using capital and human resources more efficiently. That's good in boom times and crisis. Why do we have to wait for a crisis to stop wasting people's time? We should be disciplined mm -hmm. always. Mm. But I've learned now, having gone through this boom bust cycle, you know, I've been around long enough. I really understand the, the way in which during the boom times, you know, everything just gets easier and we tend to get complacent. We tend to be more tolerant of waste and mismanagement. And then those choices come back to bite us. Mm. The other side of it is I've gotten a lot of phone calls from CEOs, from nonprofits and for-profits and all kinds of people since the pandemic hit, who I had spoken to about the power and the need for transformation during the boom times, who kind of felt like it was too difficult. They're like, oh, digital transformation and for the old, these old analog crusty mm. companies. You know, oh, it's so hard. People don't get it. It takes so long. Very tolerant of the fact that they were lethargic and slow and bureaucratic. Now, many of them have regret. I wish we'd made those investments when it would have been easy to do so during the boom times, because now those companies that have that agility are really benefiting during the crisis. Yeah. And you see it with startups too, the startups that are mission aligned, that really had a focus on learning what customers want and need, on testing their assumptions. They have been much more resilient in the face of a crisis than those who did not. So would you say that this crisis is a special opportunity for entrepreneurs to that are like lean, agile, uh, and, and fast moving? Very much so. You know, I'll paraphrase Sam Altman. I had him uh, uh, as a guest on a, on a podcast I did called Out of the Crisis, where I was trying to um, share the stories of people who were jumping into the fray and trying to make a difference. And he said something in passing that I, I've, I've quoted a lot since then, which mm -hmm. is that during a boom, during economic boom, everything gets more expensive, labor, um, people's time, uh, the, the, the input factors of production, raw materials, rent, uh, real estate, everything gets more expensive except cost of capital. It gets easier to raise money uh, in a boom. And in a depression or recession, everything is the reverse. Everything gets less expensive except cost of capital. So as an entrepreneur, that's a great trade. 
when things are inexpensive, you can run more experiments. And ironically, because of the way policymakers have responded to the crisis so far, cost of capital hasn't even gotten that much more expensive yet. So it's a, it's actually, I think this will look back, we'll look back on this time as having been a golden age of entrepreneurship. I bet many mm-hmm. of the companies that are started during this crisis will turn out to be some of the most valuable of the next decade. On the other hand, I hear from the entrepreneurs that I talk to um, that many struggle with the current situation. Even obviously there's a lot of opportunity for digitization, a lot of opportunity because many companies are changing. What's your advice to these people who struggle, who worry uh, in this current situation? Well, there's no doubt about it. Everything is harder. I mean, I run a startup. I'm, I'm CEO of LTSE and mm-hmm. the last six months have been the hardest of the company's life by far. And we've been through some stuff, you know, mm-hmm. you can imagine the kind of project we've done. Um, so, so you have to embrace that difficulty and just understand that this is hard for everyone. You know, a lot of startups rely on being in person, physical team meetings for team morale. It's a big advantage that small teams have it's much harder to replicate that on zoom. Um, it can be harder to interact with customers and investors remotely. There's just a lot of downsides and drawbacks. And of course, the stress and anxiety that the human beings who work with you are feeling at this time. You know, in the US, we have this incredible election uncertainty and this question yeah. about whether the rule of law will even prevail in the end. <laughs> yeah. I mean, very stressful. The rhetoric that is coming out of political leaders, not just here, but yeah. all over the globe, um, yeah. the turn towards kind of neo-fascism in the world. I mean, it's mm. terrifying. The protests, the natural disasters. You know, we had a, a, a we had some days here in San Francisco where the sky literally turned black and you couldn't. I go know outside. with I mean, wildfires, right? Yeah, I saw the yeah. pictures. It was devastating. It, it yeah, it was surreal. So, you know, we've had more news. You know, it's like we get a, a year's worth of news every week in 2020. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, so everyone's productivity is impacted. Everyone's uh, humanity is degraded by these behaviors and these actions. So you have to just accept that things are more difficult now. But mm-hmm. remember that entrepreneurship is about relative success. So yes, it's more difficult for you, but it's also more difficult for everyone else. So this is the nature of any kind of comp- competitive environment. You don't have to necessarily be doing a great job by absolute standards. You have to be doing a great job relative to those you are trying to disrupt or displace. Mm-hmm. So I think for many entrepreneurs, it's a good trade overall. It's more stressful. It's more painful. You have to be, as you said in the in an earlier part of this conversation, you have to be more attuned to your values and what you stand for. So, so just to give one example, mm-hmm. um, you know, one, uh, this is an old Toyota production system uh, core value called respect for people. Um, and, and it's, it's not talked about that often in the startup world. You know, we kind of take it for granted that of course you're going to treat your employees well and make them co-owners and give them stock options and, you know, attend to their needs. Of course, you know, what else, what else do you, what other assets do you have as a startup than your people? Yet in the pandemic, this has really forced us to be much more explicit about the need to put people first, attend Mm -hmm. to the humanity of the people who are in our ecosystem, our investors, our stakeholders, our employees, our vendors, our contractors, anyone that we interact with we are responsible for the impact that they have. And, you know, this is a little small thing, but I'll just give one example. Right. You know, when I'm an entrepreneur and, and maybe I don't, I'm not in in San Francisco, I'm maybe in rural Bavaria. um, There are so many things that I have to consider. There's so much noise um, in, in the current ecosystem. How do I find out, you know, the right path, you know, really caring about my people. How do I not lose sight of what's really important? Uh, do you have anything, any advice to share? It's something that you do, um, you know, to stay, you know, on, on, on path and on your strategy? 
maybe because I'm from San Francisco and I, I, I'm allowed to sound a little woo woo. This is gonna, this is okay. <laughs> but uh, you know, I understand. I was people. going for that actually. <laughs> yeah. Skeptical. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I mean, I feel like I just be honest. Okay. The most important, I think, the most important personality trait to cultivate as a founder is equanimity. I mean, obviously perseverance is important. Of course, Mm -hmm. determination is important. Um, Results orientation, of course, it's important. Uh, Accountability, many virtues of the startup condition, but I think equanimity is the most important. And the reason is that even in a normal time, startups are chaotic and difficult and just the craziest stuff happens that you just can't imagine. Um, And so you have to be willing to endure all of the uncertainty that that brings up. And here's the problem. It's not just that you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, that is stressful already. But it's also that when something does happen, you actually don't know if it's good or bad. So like uh, somebody, you know, like you have a co-founder or so an early team member who goes crazy and quits out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And it's such mm-hmm. a loss. And you're like, wow, that was awful. But then it turns out that that the person was doing something bad and you didn't know about it. And so now they're quitting a revealed the bad thing they were doing. Uh, so that's actually a good thing. But then the bad thing prevents you from being able to raise money. So then you're like, shoot, that actually turned out to be a right. really bad thing. But then the yeah. person you were going to raise the money from turns out to be a real jerk. And you're like, well, I'll dodge that bullet. And But then mm-hmm. it turns out, but then it, you could do this all day. You know, It's so hard to judge in the moment whether something is good or bad. What matters? What are you trying to accomplish? So what, ha- what you have to do in good times and especially in bad is you have to be willing to wake up each day and say, what is important today? Like, what is the right action that is required of me here in this present moment? Right. And that you can still think about the future and the past. You can still plan and have ambition and all that. But most days, you can't really do anything about most of the things that will determine the startup's success or failure. Mm-hmm. But And this was, of course, the essence of Build, Measure, Learn. There's a very small number of things that you do control every day. And do you have the courage, the equanimity, and the determination necessary to focus in on just those few things and get those things done each day? I think that is the hardest thing as an entrepreneur. Great. Um, Talking about the company uh, that you are running and that kind of launched in in the middle of this in in September, the long-term stock exchange uh, that started, obviously, as you mentioned, with your your first book. Um, What are your experiences uh, so far? Uh, And and how did this launching in in a crisis work for you? It's been a very surreal experience uh, launching uh, a product like this in an environment like yeah. this. The day, literally, the day we launched for full trading was Orange Sky Day here in San Francisco. The oh day the sky went yeah. dark. So I was actually on CNBC on TV that morning, trying to talk about my stock exchange. But out the window, <laughs> I could see the like, practically Armageddon coming right for yeah. me. It's yeah. uh, very strange. Um, you know what has kept me going in these times is. LTSE is a deeply idealistic project. You know, the people who work at the company are incredibly mission oriented. It's the only way we could possibly pull people of this caliber out of what were all really exceptional jobs they were doing before. Yeah. Because we have this, this vision of a more humane future for our civilization. And most people outside of the company think what we're doing is crazy or even impossible. So, you know, it takes a special kind of person to sign up for such a mission. In these really dark times, having that kind of beacon of positive change that we're trying to make to hold on to has been really helpful in maintaining my motivation and being able to go through the crazy stuff that we've had to deal with. Right. 
You know, it's interesting because when I was covering technology out of uh, Silicon Valley, I was obviously covering also the quarterly earnings. And I think like every second quarterly earning, there was a discussion around whether this would make sense. And there were like many entrepreneurs, uh, including um, obviously Jeff Bezos and, and Elon Musk, who would say, well, we need a different system that doesn't make sense. It put too much pressure uh, on, on companies. And yeah. why did you feel that, you know, this approach was something to consider and to really put out into the world right now? Why did you feel the timing was right, right for that? Well, I thought the timing was right in 2010 when I started working on it. So I've been, I've been at yeah. this for 10 years um, because right. this is like a, a, a multi-generational problem. You know, our grandparents would look at the capital market system that we have today and they would just like yeah. roll their eyes and be like, what are you doing? You know, they, they had a, they had a very specific experience of catastrophe Uh, they built this huge framework and foundation. You know, it's like they built us this beautiful house, a mansion that we got to live in the last, you know, three three generations. And they did that because they saw what can happen with when markets go awry and how catastrophic that can be. And we have just been hacking away at the foundations that they built for us, you know, weakening them slowly but steadily, making things worse, um, you know, over many decades. So it's going to take a long time. It took us a long time to get into this mm -hmm. mess and it's going to take a long time to get out. But you said it yourself, if the most iconic, the most like successful and uh, world-changing entrepreneurs think the system sucks, that's probably a good clue that there's something wrong with it. It's not yeah. like you can find mm -hmm. people of that stature saying that the quarterly system, built, running your company quarter to quarter is a good idea. So that, and, and yes, this is at the root cause of so many problems in the world. Our problems with sustainability, diversity, inclusion, inequality, um, you name it. I mean, our civilization cannot continue this way. Can you give an example of where you see the correlation between uh, this, this quarterly earning reports and the impact for, maybe for climate change uh, that it has on, on the real world? Yeah, a pick pick almost any corporate behavior that you find reprehensible. I mean, it's rational. I'll, I'll, I'll explain it to you this way. I was talking to an extremely large investor, this is a few years ago, who has a gigantic portfolio, obviously balanced across many asset classes. But he said to me, I, I won't put more than 10 or 20% of our money into the public into public equities. And I said, well, you have so much money. What, what do you put it into? Instead, he's like, we prefer forests. I said, what do you mean forests? Mm -hmm. I didn't understand. I literally couldn't understand what you saw. It's like, we actually literally buy forested land and we care for it. We have a huge forestry staff that harvests this land sustainably. Interesting. And I was like, but why? Mm -hmm. He says, well, over many decades, the return profile is just right for us. If you tend to the land carefully, you do quite well. But he's like, but the problem is you have to resist the temptation to juice your quarterly earnings. I said, what do you mean? He said, any quarter we want, we can have the best quarter in our history by cutting down more trees. We could do it quarter after quarter. Mm -hmm. We could do it for a long time. And we would seemingly be making money even while we are destroying the very basis of the fertility of the land that we harvest. And he's like, this is what's happening in our public markets. Practically every company you know is busy hatcheting away at its brand equity, at the communities that it operates in, at our planet, calling that profit while actually erasing the foundation of prosperity. And he said, at least with a forest, I can run satellites across the forest, take pictures, and I can see the degradation if someone were to accidentally cut down too many trees. But these other assets that corporations have are intangible, and nobody measures those impacts. And so people are blind to the catastrophe that is quarterly capitalism. 
why do you think it takes us or it took us so long to come to this point to to realize that we have to do something about it? I think people have known that it's a problem for a long time. Like if you, yeah, I've worked with thousands of middle managers of public companies at this point. You know, I've done a lot of corporate transformation work. I've been a consultant. I've mm -hmm. been an advisor. I've been an investor. I've, I've seen this. And if you talk to middle managers, most executives, frankly, boards, and ask them, what are the top three problems that afflict your company and its culture? This kind of short-term thinking is always up there. I mean, it, people will go on and mm -hmm. on and on about the problems. You know, I got into this not through, you know, not through uh, sustainability and diversity and lofty things like that. I got into it through innovation. Companies can't invest in mm -hmm. R&D because it takes more than a quarter. And R&D spending right. is um, the first to be cut when a company has a bad quarter in most companies. It's ridiculous. So people know right. it's a problem and they've been complaining about it for a long time. But when you say, what should we do about it? There's like a learned helplessness. I think part of the reigning ideology of the past few decades has been that there's really nothing you can do. These are impersonal forces, almost like laws of nature that drag companies down into mediocrity and this can't be changed or reversed. And I don't know, for whatever reason, maybe because I'm an entrepreneur by, by nature or just, you know, I'm an outsider to the system, for, for whatever reason, I've never been willing to accept mm. that. And I think we have mm -hmm. a lot more agency and ability to make change than we think. And this is hoped to be the first of many such examples as we kind of systematically repair the civic fabric of our civilization in the years to come. So, so besides having this vision and having this, you know, huge opportunity to to change something about the capital system, it's you know, you're, it's obviously a company uh, that wants to bring in business results um, as, as at a certain point. What's your determined for for success? What are the business results that you wanted to achieve with uh, with LTSE? So here's the acid test to me of a corporation in the 21st century. This will happen. Every company will be tested like this eventually. What if, you know, God forbid, someday in the future, it is revealed that some aspect of your product, its operations, its makeup, its, you know, something about your product is harmful to the human beings who use it or the societies that they inhabit. Think how many companies have faced this test in the 20th century, you know, over the last hundred years. We've had a lot of these corporate crises mm -hmm. where... You know, there's research that shows that the product is addictive or it, it is hard, bad for people's mental health or it causes environmental problems or, you know, even something simple like the Tylenol recall famously from, from last century. Who in the company has a fiduciary duty to care or are the incentives such that they will sweep it under the rug? I think we have to come to grips with the fact that the way that our current incentives are structured, most people in most companies are basically being paid to sweep these problems under the rug and pretend they don't exist, pass them on to the next person, the next quarter, the next executive, because executive tenure is going down, CEO tenure is way down, compensation instruments now are very short-term oriented, and most people, it would be very rational for them to say, listen, I just need to vest my bonus over the next three years. If I can just keep this thing a secret a little while longer, I can make my money cash mm -hmm. out and be gone. And that's just going to be crisis after crisis after crisis that we fail that moral test against. So we got to start building companies. We got to resume building companies that are governed to prevent that from happening, such that companies will face the facts of the reality of what's going on and be determined that it not happen to them, uh, that they pass those tests, that they build. Because that's where companies really can build true brand equity. That's when you can really win the trust of the public by showing that you are a high-integrity organization. People still talk about the Tylenol recall all these years later because of the power that it had for the parent company 
Right. To help them, that led to all this prosperity in the years to come. So doing the right thing can pay off, but it requires a real discipline and kind of structural approach to corporate governance that we are currently lacking. I was just going to say, do you see any examples, any good examples of companies that, you know, do so, that kind of embrace that change in, in corporate culture? You know, I don't want to name any specific names, um, lest anyone, you know, read into that, that uh, I'm, I'm making an inappropriate regulated disclosure about our work. Um, but let me just say that among the next generation of leaders, there, I think, are a few exceptional bright spots of founders and CEOs that have that chutzpah, um, have that um, deep abiding faith that doing the right thing will ultimately lead to business success. It's time to move on to the second part of our podcast, which is our Bavarian beer garden break. Because even right now during Corona, uh, when there's no Oktoberfest in Munich, uh, since we are a Bavarian conference, we want to bring at least some of the Oktoberfest spirit to this podcast here, even virtually over uh, this podcast. So, Eric, what do we drink to? Oh, now that that is a great question. <laughs> And I think I think at this time... Uh, we have to we have to drink to the new normal. There's a that, that we're not going to just be in this mess forever, but we are going to build a new prosperity together, and hopefully, it will be better than what came before. Cheers to that! Cheers, cheers to that for sure. If you could have a beer at Oktoberfest with any person, dead or alive, who would it be? I would like to sit down with W. Edwards Deming because we need, we really need his wisdom right now. And obviously, these are tough times. We talked about this um, earlier, uh, not only because of COVID, but also because of the political situation um, the U.S. is is in uh, right now. How do, how do you how do you look at this, and what are your expectations um, after the elections uh, that that just happened for for the next couple of weeks? Uh, buckle up. It's going to be a roller coaster, I think, between now, especially in the U.S., between now and January 20th. I think we are um, witnessing an unprecedented situation that our institutions may or may not have the resilience to confront. So I just, I don't really know what's going to happen, but I think it's going to be a lot of surprising twists and turns. I do ultimately believe things will, you know, that that uh, that stability and kind of the values of our liberal democracy, I do believe they will prevail, but... Um, You know, I think we all got to be attentive right now. Yeah, we, we talked about the fact that many entrepreneurs in this kind of crisis think a lot about the impact and the social responsibility they have in, in creating a better business models. What do you think is, is needed right now in terms of innovation, in terms of technologies? What are areas that you look into, be it green tech, innovative uh, technologies, deep tech technologies, where do you think the next wave of innovation is coming from? I think everybody knows what's happening in biotech right now is incredible. What's happening, you know, with machine learning, um, you know, even even the um, the realization of what the next phase of cryptocurrency and financial technology is going to have to look like in order to, to make a difference. Mm -hmm. So I feel like in terms of the deep tech, the, the real like research oriented breakthroughs, like there's a lot of good stuff coming, obviously, in energy, in climate, um, in, in material science even. Um, but 
I do think something that's maybe being underappreciated is um, there is a technology of institution building that is kind of lurking in the background of all of these conversations. Like we, we now are starting to really understand the ways in which the institutions that govern our everyday lives are deeply flawed mm-hmm. and are going to have to be rebuilt in new ways. And I mean, you just see it across, you know, schools, uh, political parties, journalism, um, unions, uh, hotels, you know, uh, so many things um, that we took for granted as kind of a necessary part of, uh, of our civic fabric, you know, hospitals and the gatekeepers that they were required to make that work, universities, uh, elementary education, you know, education at every level. So many of these institutions have had their underlying economic rationale decimated by technology, and yet their new sense of civic purpose hasn't really emerged yet. And as we see startups and tech companies rushing in to fill the gaps, not all of those actors really have much by way of values in mind, and that is creating a void Mm -hmm. that bad actors are, are able to rush to fill in. So I do think there's also going to be a wave of new institution building, especially out of the out of the wake of the pandemic and the kind of rise of uh, all these international dark forces that we've seen over the past few years. Like part of what that has all done is revealed the cracks and flaws in the system. And those are going to be opportunities to build a more humane and just future. And this would be a task for entrepreneurs, you would say? Who else? If you think about, I mean, obviously... You are an inspiration for for many for many entrepreneurs with your books and your talks. But where do you get your inspiration from? What inspires you from day to day? Well, I have young kids, so that's easy. And uh, and and seeing the world through their eyes and imagining the future that they're going to inhabit, um, you know, creates a lot of motivation for me to, you know, to do better than than was done in the past. Um, but but for all entrepreneurs, you know, I, I, I always encourage people to be widely read, to um, to meet people from different walks of life, and to be willing to experiment and kind of be bold, take risks in all areas of your life. Most of the most interesting things I know, I know because I met somebody interesting. And it wasn't always because I was trying to raise money from them for my startup. You know, I, I, I find ways to uh, be in partnership and in dialogue with interesting people mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of different ways, you know, from Help Kitchen to the other pandemic work that I did um, to, you know, the, the other kind of personal and side projects that, that I've had going on in my life. Um, I think finding it, people who are doing interesting work is a, is a continuous source of inspiration. When you think about the chaos of the startup world, the chaos of building a company, how did you deal with embarrassments or things that went sideways uh, in your career? And be- because I think it's a situation that many people are, you know, have to deal with uh, right now. And how did you get yourself out of this situation? What were your learnings there? You know, in the movies, when you watch a movie about entrepreneurship, <clears throat> the most, and, and this is true of, you know, A lot of, lot of, uh, lot of blockbuster movies and all, all kinds of popular entertainment. There's a story structure. There's a hero's journey to it. And uh, in part of the hero's journey, the hero is told by some friend or colleague or parent or authority figure that their vision or dream will never work. And then at the end of the movie, one of the most satisfying parts of the movie is uh, the character comes back to that person and says, see, I told you so. It did work. And that person is... Right. Know, yeah. It, it, is this the case in, in Silicon Valley as well? Like the Silicon Valley TV show? I never never really Well, that it. that's a bit oh, of a send-up no. of that same concept. But, <laughs> but even still, it, is, it still has that 
that that that right. element yeah. is always woven in there and and seeing the protagonist tell off the doubters and the cynics is deeply satisfying yeah. but what people don't realize is that in real life since the mass vast majority of things that have ever been attempted by anybody don't work that the cynics are much more often right than wrong so the most humiliating mm-hmm. part of having your startup fail is having to call those people back and be like hey um remember when you said that I was stupid to drop out of school and do that <laughs> thing and it would never work yeah, you were right. right. I was wrong. And here I am back in school. So I was lucky actually to have those kinds of humiliating experiences relatively early in my life. And what mm-hmm. you realize when you go through that is it's not as bad as you think. You know, mm-hmm. you just have to, the only way to deal with embarrassment that I'm aware of is just to be embarrassed, to to endure it and then realize, oh, this is actually okay. I can I can handle it. And then, you know, you get better at it. So if you would be the director of a movie about a hero he would totally fail and, you know, everything would collapse at the end and he would ride into the big Armageddon of, you know, Napa Valley wildfires or something like that. Well, this is the problem. Uh, real life doesn't make very good movies yeah. in this in this dimension. There's a reason why, I mean, I, I'll never forget the first time I was with a, a case study, a case study writer from one of the major business schools. And they were doing a case study about me and something that I had done. Mm-hmm. And as I was telling them the story and as they were building the case, they said, well, we need to make some changes to make it more interesting to the students. I said, what do you mean changes? They said, well, it said in this situation, you told us that it went down like this, but we kind of feel like the students will find it too obvious to know what the right thing to do is there. <laughs> so we want to make the, we want to change the factors to make it more. And I was like, what do you mean? First of all, obvious. I lived through that. You told me it was obvious. And second of all, I said, sorry, I'm not comfortable with that because that's not what really happened. And don't you have an obligation to tell your students the truth? Your story is too and boring. They, it's too boring. It's too boring. They looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, don't you understand? We're trying to teach the students. I was like, but won't the truth be the thing that teaches them best? And they were like, they laughed. What are you talking about? Of course not. You have to keep the student's interest. So I think we don't realize the extent to which we are constantly consuming narrative fiction, Mm -hmm. even in our supposedly nonfiction um, learning. And that's why no amount of reading in books or case studies or movies or any kind of, of narrative can ever replace the experimental, the learnings you get through experimental practice. Um, You know, it's a really an argument for empiricism because so much of what we imbue from others is tinged with this um, narrative uh, narrative uh, illusion. Right. When you think about the entrepreneurs that you've met um, during your career and the founders that you, that you are meeting, what traits do you see and did you observe in, in founders of your career working that are driving the innovation forward? Well, this is the thing that people don't really want to accept. Um, many negative traits are present in many great entrepreneurs. You know, Steve Jobs was famously ruthless and cruel to people around him. And I have met many people like that, monomaniacally focused on um, their own product or their own success, very selfish. We've seen people commit great frauds. Um, people cut corners, um, harm people, you know, cut others out of the economics of their uh, their startup. Think about all the stories you've heard about about founders being screwed over by investors or mm-hmm. by other founders or investors being screwed over by founders. Like, there's a lot of bad behavior bound up in innovation. And that's, you know, I'm sure true in every human discipline. So I used to be very naive. I used to say, well, those bad behaviors, like those people will ultimately get their comeuppance. You know, they're their own punishment mm-hmm. and you can't have business success if you miss, but actually that's like, really not true. In the long, long, long run, of course, you know, your reputation is your most valuable asset. So I do think it's foolish to behave those ways. But boy, do you see a lot of counterexamples. People make a lot of money. 
lauded in public, you know, that, that kind of stuff happens. So I don't think you can really ask yourself, what are the personality traits that lead to success? Because that's kind of a dangerous road. I think it's much more likely to, for entrepreneurs, you're much, much better off to ask yourself, the great entrepreneurs who I respect the most, like what, what is it that allowed them to have a positive impact in the world? And that's when you start to see that it's not just about having the reality distortion field and getting people, you know, being able to hypnotize them to believe anything you want, mm. because that that power can be used for good or for ill. Um, the people who I respect the most have a deep, deep vision for, you know, improving the condition of humanity. And they want to leave the world better than they found it uh, in a profound way. And then they use that. It's not just activism. It's not just kind of bland idealism. They have a very specific um, commitment to see that vision actually realized on this earth before they die. And that's a, that's a rare thing, but a beautiful thing. So it's, it's vision over being an asshole then. That's, that's, that's a good news. <laughs> you know, I hope so. I hope so. Coming to our toolbox right now, which is uh, the next part of our podcast, uh, where our, our guests share their three top tips for founders and entrepreneurs uh, with our listeners. What would be your three tools that you would recommend to everyone out there in our audience? Well, I'm not really, really good at the quick tips because uh, I tried to write write a whole book about this topic. And, <laughs> okay. uh, it took me, took me a couple hundred pages to say what I meant. But, you know, if I could distill some of those ideas, uh, hopefully as a prompt for people to want to learn more. The first is to realize that everything you do in a startup is an experiment, whether you admit it or not. So you may as well have good experimental design. Um, we've already talked about the importance of equanimity, of being able to see the big picture, of being able to hold the emotional space and treat people with kindness, even even in the chaos and the and the stress of uh, of uncertainty. And then you know people talk about build, measure, learn, and minimum viable product, and the need to focus and pivot and, and all those concepts. But I think the essence of that is still widely misunderstood. The goal is not to be iterative for its own sake. The goal is not to kind of jump around from idea to idea to idea. The purpose of experimentation and build, measure, learn is to discover whether we're getting closer to our big vision or not. So first of all, you can't do that if you don't have a big vision, period. Mm -hmm. But also it's easy to get distracted and to use the so-called progress of experimentation as a excuse not to go take the big bets and the big swings when the moment comes. The last part of our podcast is our either or game. Uh, and this is how it works. I give you two words and you have to choose one and tell me why you've made that choice. And since we are at Bits and Pretzels, the first one is obviously Bits or Pretzels. Bits, obviously. I've loved software since I was a child. Nerd or extrovert? Well, I'm very much the nerd and quite introverted myself. But, but, but many of my best friends are extroverts, so you know. Okay. Numbers or ideas? These are good. Uh, I like ideas even more than numbers. Speaking or listening? I should say listening, but uh, <laughs> I do have a bit of an addiction to speaking. So if I'm being honest, that's a, that's what I struggle with. Conquer or compromise? Conquer. I don't like either of those words, especially. So I guess I'll choose compromise just because of my commitment to nonviolence. Chaos or order? Chaos. Chaos, was it from Game of Thrones? Chaos is a ladder. <laughs> singing, uh, singing in the shower or in the car? Uh, in the car, for sure. Tradition or transition? So I might surprise people by choosing tradition, and it's not that I'm you know slavishly devoted to tradition, but I do think that we are quick 
to uh, jettison the wisdom of the things that have come before uh, without really understanding what they were for. Follow or lead? Lead, of course. But boy, the value of a good follower is not to be understated. Eric Ries, thank you so much for coming on the Bits and Pretzels podcast today. Oh, it's really my pleasure. Thank you. And uh, uh, just, <laughs> I mean, stay safe to everybody in these trying times. I hope, you know, I hope it's the kind of thing that we'll be able to celebrate in person someday, uh, someday soon. Thank you very much and stay safe yourself. All right. That was it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and subscribe to our podcast to never miss a new episode again. You'll find us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you're listening. See you next week.